everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Anirudh Singh. Our guest today is Douglas Landy, partner at White & Case. Doug is also co-head of White & Case's Financial Institutions Industry Group and head of the U.S. Financial Services Regulatory Practice. He is also a member of the firm's FinTech practice. Doug is one of the most preeminent U.S. lawyers advising financial institutions on blockchain and crypto matters. He represents global banks on the creation of blockchain and crypto trading platforms, custody, payment systems, stablecoins, and related financial products. Doug has also been advising non-bank fintech companies on potential bank charters, including the OCC's payment charter and similar charters and licenses. In today's episode, we discuss a neobank's decision-making process when applying for a banking charter, regulations surrounding banks' engagement in crypto activities, the evolution of central bank digital currencies, and much, much more. Hope you enjoy the show. So hi, Doug, and thank you so much for joining us on the Wharton FinTech Podcast. We are incredibly excited to have you on the show today. Uh, How are you doing and where are you uh, calling in from? Well, first of all, I'm super excited to be here. I'm in Midtown Manhattan at my office at White & Case right now and uh, looking forward to talking about some FinTech stuff. Great. Midtown Manhattan is a special place to be in December, so I hope you're enjoying it. Um, So let's just jump right into it. And for listeners that might not know, could you just provide an overview of your career to date and how you became involved in financial services and fintech? Sure. I am the head of the U.S. regulatory practice here at White & Case and the co-head of the FIG group, which is basically everybody who represents financial institutions, um, including fintech. And I started my career, I'm, I'm an attorney And I started my career out of law school at the Fed. I went to work for the Federal Reserve here in New York. And I worked there for about five years or so and then left and have been in private practice ever since. And my career really kind of breaks down into sort of the before the financial crisis and the after the financial crisis periods where before I was really a classical bank regulatory lawyer working on issues of banking and securities law, sort of who can do what, permissibility, mergers, capital, you know, that kind of stuff. Financial crisis really changed the nature of the practice because, of course, everything became about risk, bank risk, systemic risk, market risk, and so on. And that really opened my practice in a lot of ways. Started doing a lot of payments, settlement, and clearing work which I had done a lot of when I was at the Fed, but didn't really translate that well into private practice. And why that's important is that led me pretty much directly into the fintech work that I do. Looking at sort of the the post-Dodd-Frank period when people were really interested in the risk that accrues in the system in various places, many of sort of the early fintech solutions based on distributed ledger and other technologies really aimed at dealing with those issues. And that became really an entree for me into that area. And I really started doing a ton of that work, helping financial institutions and others sort of deal with the the parts of risk that accrue in those systems, payment, clearing, settlement, PCS, they call it. And uh, eventually that led into distributed ledger blockchain because some of the earliest non-crypto based applications or proposed applications of the technology really were based on kind of early DeFi type solutions or using DeFi concepts in in traditional FI as to speeding up clearance settlement, sort of de-risking the system and so on. 
so I've always continued to do sort of the regulatory work that I do. But now I'd say the majority of my practice is really fintech based. And a lot of it overlaps in that as fintech concepts and products enter the financial system, there is a heavy regulatory overlay that needs to be developed and you know, we'll talk about it, but it's not just the, is this crypto a security? It's really sort of much broader than that. But that's the practice at this point. So I'm here, I have a team. I work with um, a lot of bank clients, fintech clients. Very interesting that you tie the Dodd-Frank regulation and some of the the DeFi landscape that we're seeing now uh, to that regulation. Uh, In my head, uh, there are two separate time periods, but uh, we'll dive more into how you see those two kind of uh, coming together in a second. But let's start a little bit before then. Maybe we can start with um, some of the bank chartering work uh, that you had mentioned front. Specifically, you know, there's neobanks right now that are taking two different routes. Some are choosing to become chartered banks. Some are choosing not to. I uh, would love to hear uh, your experience in that space and kind of how that process, that decision-making process works for banks. Absolutely. That is among kind of the most interesting policy choices that are on the table right now. You know, we've certainly seen an explosion of fintechs that are looking to enter the traditionally regulated financial services areas, banking, securities, insurance, and so on. And oftentimes, they structure themselves not to be regulated, which is certainly a choice that many have made. But ultimately, if you want to be a serious player and build scale and so on, you you have to make your peace with the system and, and come to some arrangement with it. And the interestingly, the system has moved a little bit towards those players as well. You know, we have a very highly regulated and constrained system in the United States. We're not a country that really allows open banking and that kind of sort of attempts to figure out on a small scale sandbox style, you know, what may work before scaling it. We just don't have that like the UK or other countries do. And where we do have it, it's very tiny and really doesn't work for anybody. But there are a different number of ways for fintechs to enter the system. You know, and you, you sort of touched on some whether you partner with an existing bank. The partnership aspect was traditionally how these players entered the system. Since then, banks have really started offering those partnerships as a service. So banking as a service, in a sense, that tends to be kind of more a complete package. And so so that has definitely grown in the last five, six years, the, the BAS, the bank as a service. There are also limited charters and then there are full charters. And, and we've sort of seen a little of each in this area, you know, sort of taking them one at a time, right? The easiest way to get going, if you know, if you were representing, if you're a company that comes to me and says, I, I want to, got a great product, I want to start tomorrow, you enter into a quick partnership with the bank, right? And the bank takes your product and offers it to their client base, basically, although you can combine your client bases with the bank. But the bank is the regulated entity, has a full compliance obligation. You're just the product provider to the bank in that circumstance. The bank controls the customer relation relationship, which is very important. That is sort of the earliest and easiest way to access say US consumer finance, if that's which is the most highly regulated sector. If that's not good for you, and a lot of people grow out of that very quickly because they want to control the client relationship. 
They don't want somebody standing in between them and their clients, which which is you know understandable. That's where banking as a service really can work for you. So if you go out as a fintech and say you get licensed to you know lend in fifty states, then you that's great, but you may not have the sort of the package. How do you do that, right? How do you actually make the loans? How do you receive the money? Who holds the money? All those kind of details that are are super important, especially in an industry that promises speed and efficiency to outperform traditional financial services. So that's the best. That that's where some of the banks have really put together what they call like white glove service, so that you can provide the service that um, would be expected of your product without having to be a fully licensed bank, fully chartered bank to do so. Now, but you're paying somebody for that, right? Obviously, the bank wants to get paid it's providing all the services. So once you scale up, that payment becomes quite a lot of money. And that's where you see some of the entities try and move to limited or full chartered services. Also, we're talking only about the product side, really the lending side. If you want to fund yourself, so if you're looking at a bank balance sheet, we're talking about the asset side, the loans. If you want to look at the liability side, so you get the cash in to make the loans, banks have an inherent advantage in the United States because they can accept deposits. And deposits are a very cheap and stable form of funding. If you accept insured deposits, they're backed by the federal government up to 250000 depending on the circumstance. But you can only do that if you're a bank. No non-banks can accept deposits. And there's really two basic kinds of banking charters in the United States, the limited and the full. And limited are a bunch of different types. They, they range from trust companies, industrial loan companies, ILCs, specialized charters in Wyoming and other places that have been set up for digital assets or other specific asset classes like credit cards. The OCC offered its, its fintech charter and its payments charter over the last couple of years. Those are all forms of limited charters one way or another. In other words, you can act like a bank, but you can't do everything that a bank can do. And each one has its positives and negatives. There's a big debate going on right now. Is it better to have fintechs inside the tent? In other words, they're they're regulated like banks, regardless of where on that scale they are? Or is it better to keep them out of the tent because they bring different risks to the table? And there's a real debate going on in Washington about which is the proper way to view that industry. And there's no real right answer to it. I think most people who have come up through, through the regulators view it better to have them under the tent because at least you know what you're dealing with then, even if they don't fit squarely into the round holes that have been traditional banks. But there's plenty of other people that look at it and say, you know, having a bank is a, a thing that you should aspire to and you should have a level playing field for, and why don't those new guys have to play by the same rules? So there'll probably be some kind of hybrid solution to that eventually, where you are brought under the same rules, but it recognizes the different business model and only applies those rules that are really necessary to that new framework of whatever that fintech is doing. And we've seen the start of that in the president's working group report on stablecoins, which we'll talk about a little later. But that debate's going right in that document. You can kind of read the debate itself. 
very interesting answer. And I'm curious if you have a gauge on how other countries or regions have worked to solving this problem of fintechs being uh, banks or not banks. For example, I always view the UK and uh, the EU as kind of a more consistent regulatory environment, maybe a bit more proactive regulatory environment when you look at open banking. Do they have a perspective on on where uh, fintechs fit into the landscape? Well, I think what you said is right. Like, it, it's much easier to get started in a limited way, especially in the UK, but certainly in parts of the EU as well, because of sort of the sandbox model, the um, the limited open banking models that are kind of incubators for various fintech models. However, we haven't really seen that that has been an accelerant to getting banking licenses. I think, you know, the regulators in the UK and in the EU have the same issues that are present in the US, which is, you know, consumer protection, safety and soundness, financial stability, level playing fields. And while everybody interprets those things differently, it's not as if there's an easier path necessarily in a different country, it may be easier for specific entities because they match up better with what the country is concerned about. But, you know, it's, it's not like we've seen a hundred UK fintechs become banks. We've seen a handful. You've brought up a little bit the concept of um, fintech companies being able to do things that banks can't readily do. And another bucket that fits into that concept is, quote unquote, engaging in crypto activities. Could you describe the current state uh, that regulators are taking towards banks and cryptocurrencies? Absolutely. That's very much a frontline issue right now. And I'd urge everybody, I'll self-advertise to go to my website on White and Case and look at some of the pieces we've written, which offer in-depth analysis on these points. The, The engagement of banks and crypto is very much at its infancy right now. Banks generally just on any kind of new activity, tend to hang back until they can understand the risks more. As one regulator said to me, crypto is the only asset that might be on a bank's balance sheet that could go to zero tomorrow. And they have to be treated like that. And we've seen that, and that's not necessarily true, right? I mean, but that is kind of the view in the regulators, which are very risk adverse. But we've seen the BIS, which sets global capital standards, apply the highest one to crypto, which is 1,250%, which is very, very harsh penalty for wanting to hold that on your balance sheet. And in fact, there are no US banks that have been authorized yet to hold crypto on their balance sheet as sort of a trading asset. Banks are holding it in custody. Banks are lending against it. And banks are doing other things that provide traditional services to crypto without actually taking a position in it themselves. And that is something that I think the regulators know there's a lot of interest in. In some of their issuances in the last month or two, they've mentioned that there are issues that they intend to deal with in 2022, next year. That And one of those is balance sheet crypto. Now there are, I mean, there are many, many banks. I think that would be interested in that one form or another. Certainly, crypto is an asset class now. People want to invest in it, and that's what banks do. They they help their clients gain exposure to financial assets as necessary. You know, they they provide leverage on it. They lend against it. They do all those things. They might um, market make in certain assets and so on. But 
I think there are a lot of technical issues to work out on that. First and foremost, crypto, whether it's a security or a commodity, you know, it needs to be identified as to what it is before banks can take it on their balance sheets. For Bitcoin and Ether, let's say that perhaps they're not securities, but are commodities, banks will have to treat them as commodities. And banks have interesting and bifurcated powers to trade in commodities. If the commodity is uh, a bullion, a gold, silver, things that banks have traditionally used as currency, banks basically can do whatever they want with it. If it's a non-bullion commodity, oil, gas, things of that nature, banks traditionally have not been allowed to engage in those. They've been seen as too risky. So you know, crypto sort of falls in the middle there, right? It's not necessarily really a currency. It doesn't meet any of the legal tests like that. But it's also not oil and gas. There's no distribution risk, holding risk, environmental risk, that kind of thing. It's merely just a financial asset somewhere in the middle. So they'll have to figure out how to develop the legal framework that allows banks to safely engage with crypto because their clients want it, right? We've seen you know, the struggle to get, say, an ETF up and running. There's huge demand for it. And where there has been the ability to engage in crypto activities in the traditional financial channels, there's been just a lot of activity. So I think we'll see a lot of movement on that next year, but we're not there yet. One question that always kind of bothers me, and maybe it's a bit elementary, but I'd want to ask it anyways. Why are we trying to fit crypto into an existing category like commodities and securities? Why not create a, a new category? That, because it does feel like a, a, you know, a square peg in a round hole. Yeah, I think that's, you know, your instincts are right on. It, you really should create a new category for it. But Congress has to do that. And Congress hasn't done that yet. And, you know, we've seen in the president's working group report, the regulators throwing up their hands a little bit saying, Congress, please come and tell us, you know, how these things should be treated. And that related just to stable coins. But I think you can analogize that to sort of the, the entire industry in a sense, because just for the reasons you said, and, you know, there's a lot of fall on effect from that. One of the things that, you know, I know we were talking about before talking about kind of um, crypto exchanges, ones that are traditional crypto ones, but are moving into more traditional financial services, custody lending and those types of things. You know, why are they different? Well, because they don't offer securities, they're not a national securities exchange. Because they're not a national securities exchange, they don't have access to the things that have been set out to provide security and liquidity for national securities exchanges or commodities um, trading platforms, like access to Fed accounts, access to liquidity backstops, that kind of thing that makes those things more safe as they get larger, basically, because size is always the issue for you know the payment settlement and clearing systems. And certainly the size is going to increase for the crypto exchanges, right? We've seen an explosion in the last year or two. There's no doubt in my mind that's going to continue. But they are lacking the basic safeguards that are available for the traditional financial services settlement and clearing systems. And there's no real reason for that, right? It's all financial assets. Just apply rules to them and set them up in a way that they can succeed because people are interested in it. Let's continue down the path of Cryptocurrencies have a slightly different lens, uh, which is um, CBDCs or, or central bank digital currencies. 
So from, from an outsider's perspective, I've heard of the European Central Bank launching an investigation into CBDCs, heard of a few other countries looking more closely into it a bunch. I, we actually had uh, the Central Bank of the Bahamas on the show a few months back, uh, and they were one of the first, or actually the first to launch a CBDC. Uh, and it seems like the U.S. is a kind of in a wait-and-see mode on the concept. So I'd love to hear uh, your stance on CBDCs and if you think that will become a major part of the financial landscape moving forward. I do think so. I'm certainly personally in favor of them. Although I think, you know, there's various structures of CBDC. You know, if you boil it down, there's basically two types. One's that the central bank issues direct to consumers or that are issued through banks to bank customers. I think direct to consumer would be very difficult in the United States for various reasons. The most important of which is it has the potential to destabilize the banking system by pulling deposits out of it because that's what they would be. I mean, it's just where do you hold your cash in a bank or in a CBDC? And the more functionality a CBDC gets, you don't need the bank anymore, right? There's no credit risk when you're holding something from the Federal Reserve directly. You know, you're not at a risk that a bank's holding your money and the bank may fail and you know whatever. The FDIC generally steps in and you know, if you're under the deposit insurance amounts, you generally don't have to be concerned, but there're plenty of people who are over it or are disenfranchised from the system in one way or another. So I think there's a lot of possibility there. The Fed is testing CBDC. They have a number of things going. The Federal Reserve Bank of Boston has generally been leading sort of the active tests. One of their programs is a joint test of some kind with MIT, where they're testing different things. They actually haven't said yet whether a CBDC would be based on distributed ledger technology or not, which is sort of an interesting you know, thing. I think we'd all sort of assumed it would be, right? There are various reasons why that technology works very well. Certainly blockchain as a record of truth as to who's holding it and immediate uh, the ability to transfer instantaneously and so on. But again, those things, you know, if you go through the banking system, then you have to kind of line up the technology with the structure. And I think they're sort of being careful about that so far. But it's certainly, we have CBDC in this country already. I think people perhaps are not aware of that. The Fed, in essence, has one that it allows its account holders to use, but those account holders are really only banks that have Fed accounts, but they transfer um, central bank credit back and forth all day long. That's basically what the Fed does. One of its roles is it allows entities to engage in those transfers and sort of backstops the payment system and so on. And it also uses, um, those are called Fed funds, and it also uses Fed funds to control the money supply, which perhaps people you know recognize as one of its main functions is raising and lowering interest rates and so on. So there's a lot baked in there. Because, for example, the Fed really doesn't want to lose control of the money supply. And you know, putting in a new instrument like that is a huge endeavor for them in terms of making sure that they can fulfill their duties of controlling sort of inflation and, and doing that through the traditional channels. If you create a new channel, you have to make sure that you can still exercise that control over it. Which is, you know, I know anathema to perhaps the libertarian holders of crypto, but it is sort of the Fed's main function, pretty much. So they're going to continue to do it one way or another. But there's also tons of operational issues. You know, there are what 375 million people in this country in the United States. 
Is the Fed going to have 375 million accounts? It seems incredible to think, you know, like how would they manage that? Who would control it? You know, where would the information go? There's so many questions that in a republic, democratic political system like we have are huge questions, whereas, say, in China, they don't care about, right? They're just going to issue it. They're going to use it as a means of control, among other things. And it's probably very effective at that. But that's really not the system we have or want to have in the United States at all. But I do think we'll have one. I just think the technology is better. There's a lot of float baked into our financial system, which is one of the things people hate the most about banks, which is how long it takes for things to settle and the fact that the banks make money in the interim and so on. And I get that. I, I curse as well when I can't get my money immediately you know, when, when I need it. And I think that's going to be squeezed out. Technology is just going to wipe that out at some point. But there will be knock-on effects from that. For example, there are bank services that really are not cost-effective but are funded by that invisible float. Checking accounts, for example. Checking accounts don't make banks any money at all. And they cost money because you print the checks, you have to, you know, it's paper flying around the world, basically. So if you take away kind of the funding for that in the float that checks allow, you know, you put a check in, the bank kind of holds your money till it clears and so on. It's unclear, you know, what will happen to that. That may have sort of the counter effect that we want, sort of the reverse financial inclusion of crowding out these services that banks offer. And I think people wish they would offer more of because they allow lots of people to get into the system. But cost money and banks are for-profit businesses with shareholders and the need to kind of provide service in a way that's cost-effective. So we'll see. I mean, that's a long way to saying, I think we're in the beginning of a lot of change in the system. And part of that change will be CBDC. One of the things that excites me about CBDCs is potential greater interoperability with other currencies. And so when you mentioned not using distributed ledger technology that has me thinking like, okay, there's a chance here of building better infrastructure and kind of being able to move money cross borders efficiently. But there's also a chance to to kind of mess it up and have to build a new layer of infrastructure that's kind of as gross as the existing one, so to speak. I'll again ask for like a, a zoomed out view of, of what other countries are working on in this space. And uh, if you think there's anyone that, you know, the US might want to emulate. Absolutely. Um you know, taking that last part first, I don't think there's anybody we're going to want to emulate. You know, our our desire is always to protect the dollar, to make sure the dollar's purchasing power remains steady and constant. We don't want inflation or deflation, and generally done an excellent job at that. Not to say there haven't been periods where it's been you know terrible inflation or risks of deflation, but as compared with everybody else, you know, we we've done a much better job protecting the dollar and the dollar's position as the world's reserve currency is also really among the critical things that the US looks at in in how it deals with this stuff and i think maybe that gets misunderstood a little bit people um say well why don't we get a cbdc cuz china is racing ahead of us and so on being first doesn't really matter at all there's no prize for being you know the best and the first this is a question of stability and trust, which is only built over many, many years. But there is a huge advantage to being the world's reserve currency because people have to buy and hold dollars. Dollars are used as the primary means of trade 
and so on. So, you know, I, I think, you know, they'll, they will look very carefully at not disturbing that system, even as they introduce new technology into it. I do think we'll see many countries experiment with CBDCs. It seems odd to think, you know, we'll look back in five years and see that there's 178 CBDCs out there or something to that effect. It seems much more likely that, you know, a few CBDCs will come out and end up kind of dominating and other people will use them in ways or not, which is fine, right? You don't, you don't want sort of one CBDC for every country in the world. That's way too much sort of political risk in somebody's hands. You also don't want 200 of them, right? So you want kind of a, a medium adoption. And I do think we'll see all different kinds. We've seen what El Salvador is doing, um, adopting Bitcoin as their national currency or a type of national currency there. That's, you know, even though they're called cryptocurrencies, you know, as we know, they may be crypto, but they're not currencies anywhere. They don't meet the definition of legal tender in the United States, certainly. But what El Salvador has done is change its law. And now Bitcoin is legal tender and entities that are subject to that have to accept it for certain types of obligations. I think we're going to see things like that going on. So, you know, to may, maybe people will take that same position with the, the Fed's CBDC eventually or others um, in different countries. But it certainly makes a ton of sense to, to have a CBDC that or a few that operate in an interoperable way that make trade easier, that allow for central banks to backstop each other, which we've seen in the last couple of financial crises. The Fed has set out central bank swap lines where it swaps dollars for whatever currency the country has um, where they need dollars as support. That could be done much easier through CBDC, right? The CBDC is just in essence a, a giant stable coin issued by the government as opposed to a private issuer. So I think, you know, like I like we've said, I think we're at the beginning of period of intense change, some of which will be driven by private industry and some will be driven by the governments eventually. But change nonetheless, definitely gonna happen. And continuing to zoom out, and perhaps we've already hinted at this answer a little bit, but I would love to hear which overall trends within fintech you're most excited to see play out in the next three to five years. Yeah, I I'm very much interested in watching how technology is adopted into the financial system and what that means and how it changes things. You know, we've, we've said a couple of those, like squashing settlement times and making it easier for people to do certain things. I'd certainly love to see technology um, sort of adopt a wave of financial inclusion so allowing people access to the system in different ways because the current structure just has sort of built in problems that for you know, so often they're good intentions like know your customer and AML requirements that people struggle to meet if they don't have the type of documentation that's required for those things. There has to be a way to solve that through technology of allowing creating a safe space that includes people who traditionally have not been included or found it difficult to get into the system while protecting the system itself from bad players and 
and risky things. You know, there just has to be. And I hope we we use technology to come to a place where that happens because that that's really just a win-win-win for everybody. I'm really looking forward to seeing the development of DeFi in the PCS space. So the payment clearing settlement space, you know, there's so many complaints about the existing system and some of those complaints make sense. Certainly like, why are we still at T2 for settling securities trades? Seems kind of, kind of nuts. On the other hand, you know, people refer to those entities that perform those services as toll takers, right? That they kind of stand in the middle and, and take a, a penny from each thing. And they really don't deserve that in a way. I think that really kind of misunderstands their role. It's true and for any particular transaction that that's probably an inefficient way to settle that one transaction. But when you add 500 million transactions per day to that, you're really looking at systemic issues. And how do you corral all that risk in a way that doesn't bring down the system if you know there's a power outage somewhere or if one player fails to settle and kind of messes up everything or any of the other myriad issues that could happen? And I think that's what DeFi has yet to sort of reckon with, which is it's great to get rid of the central player to speed things up and to empower people on each end. On the other hand, when you get rid of the central player, you're reinviting in the risk that the central player was created to deal with. So if you don't have a stock exchange, if you don't have a clearing company of some kind, what does that look like as you scale it up? And if you have instantaneous transfer and settlement as distributed ledger technology certainly permits, how does that work with sort of the, the myriad of laws that sort of cover how payments work. And what I mean by that is, you know, there's a huge legal framework set up to say, okay, now is when your transaction is final. Now is when payment is done and you have paid the other person. The other person gives you whatever you're paying for. You're both off the hook, move on, you're done. If you're, you know, if you're paying by check, if you're paying by cash, you're paying by a wire, we know when that happens. The laws, you know, may not be clear, but it's out there. We don't have any of that law yet for distributed ledger stuff. And I think we're going to struggle until we do because finality of payment is such a core concept to financial transactions that without it, I think in a DeFi sense, we're going to struggle until we know kind of. I think people have assumed that that's baked into sort of the, you know, the smart contract that activates in, in a DeFi situation and moves stuff. And that may be true, but we don't necessarily know that yet. And it won't, we won't know until a new law is passed or something terrible happens and it's tested, right? And the regulators or the courts or somebody steps in to give us more guidance. And the last thing I wanted to do today was ask a rapid fire round of questions. We're hoping to get answers here in 10 seconds or less. Uh, are you ready to go? <laughs> sure. Hit me. Let's do it. Uh, so if you were not a lawyer, uh, what other career would you have pursued? I think probably a writer, you know, for a lawyer, I'm, I'm very writing friendly and I've written close to a hundred pieces in my legal career. Another, uh, I'll add a shameless plug here for your blog posts <laughs> on crypto. They're very insightful. Thank you. What is your favorite neighborhood in Manhattan? Oh, um, Carnegie Hill, which is part of the Upper East Side, which is where I live. And it's right near the park, which I love. It's kind of a neighborhood in the middle of Manhattan that's very leafy. 
and um, just gives you a sense that perhaps you're not right in the middle of a city. Yeah. I always make sure I, I, I stop by during Christmas time a, a little bit in Manhattan. It's even better uh, in December than it is otherwise. If you could have dinner with anyone, who would you pick? Oh, I think William Faulkner, which may be an odd choice, but I wrote my uh, college thesis on him. And I love his work, and um, I've always been interested. He's such a stream of consciousness guy. I wonder if that would be the way that he would speak when you're sitting and eating with him. Uh, what's your favorite vacation that you've ever been on? Oh, African safari, definitely, hands down. Um, we went and spent about three weeks in Kenya and Tanzania. Very nice. Last question is, what was your favorite part of 2021? I think my favorite part of 2021 is going to be the end of 2021 and to sort of see it off. I think it's been a tough year and on to a better 2022. Yes. Fingers crossed for a better 2022. Well, Doug, I think that's a pretty good place to, to wrap it up, but uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you for, for joining us on the show. We don't always get the regulator and the lawyer perspective, so it's very insightful uh, to hear your thoughts on it. Thank you. Absolutely. It was fun. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Medium, and Twitter at Wharton Fintech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I would also like to thank our editor, Raphael Austria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Anirudh Singh.